Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Am I good? Okay. Um, I want to take just a minute before we get started. Um, good morning. I'm glad everybody is here. It's good to see your faces. Uh, and um, uh, this week was a hard week uh, on many, many, many levels. If you turned on a TV or a computer uh, in any news source, this was a very, very difficult week. Um, and uh, as anger still tends to be the predominant language of the day, and um, uh, but also for uh, refuge, uh, took on a, a personal note uh, of difficulty. Um, uh, many of you may remember Bruce and Deborah Kay, uh, and uh, this last week um, we un- well uh, we, we lost Bruce. Uh, Bruce entered his uh, eternal home. Um, he battled with COVID for three weeks, and uh, and he passed away on th- I think it was Thursday that. Uh, when was it Wednesday? Okay, um, and he had been hanging on, and so we want to be in prayer for the Roques. They moved up to uh, Minnesota a couple of uh, years ago, but um, Bruce and Deb were one of those people that you look at and you go, "Man, when I grow up, um, they just loved people well. They took their hits. They uh, experienced good times and bad times." Um, and uh, had moved up to, to Minnesota a few years ago just to be close to family. Um, and uh, so um, it's appropriate this week as we talk about the culmination of all things. Um, uh, as followers of Jesus, uh, we, do, we do grieve. It's one of those things where when people say, well, you know, he's in a better place and we're, we shouldn't be sad. No, we should be sad because death is not part of the original design. Death was not meant to be. It, 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 is, it is an infiltrator into God's designed kingdom uh, and an unwelcomed one. Um, and Jesus never went to a funeral that he didn't break up, including his own. And we, so we do weep and we do mourn um, because, because death exists. Uh, and yet, as followers of Jesus, we also mourn and weep with hope because we know that death will not have the last word. Uh, we know that death will not win. Um, and, and even Jesus using Isaiah mocks death. Where is your sting? Um, where is your victory? And so um, we grieve and we mourn and we weep with Deb and with the Roques and their family, uh, and yet we do weep with hope. And so you may see some more ways uh, just on Facebook and whatever to be able to love, that, love and serve Deb. Um, but I want to take just a minute and pray uh, for them. Uh, and for us as a, as a church. So, God, thank you um, that you are good, that you are holy, that you are just, that you are full of mercy and grace. And you are these ways on the days that we get it when the sun is shining and it's beautiful outside and everything, ste- everything seems to be right with the world. And you are good and right and holy and just and merciful and full of grace on the days that we don't get it, on the days when we wonder if you know what's going on down here. You are good and faithful, and we can trust you. We can come to you with our hurts. We can come to you with our joys. We can come to you with our frustrations and our angst. Uh, And um, God, today, I hope and pray that you would fill us with the hope of what one day will be fully, 
uh, and that doesn't cause us to be some kind of somehow aloof from the, str- uh, from the struggles of this day. If anything, it calls us to, to persevere that much more, uh, to weep genuinely um, because of, of the intruders into your designed world, that, that we bear responsibility in bringing about death and shame and hurt and all of those things, uh, and yet to weep and mourn as those with hope. Um, so I pray that we would love each other well this week, maybe with a little extra patience, um, a little extra grace, uh, continue to work on us as your people, um, that we would be a people of hope. Thanks for Bruce and his life, uh, the way that he loved people, the way that they both loved people. And um, that, is, that is a gift that we don't take lightly. And we rejoice uh, in your mercy even there. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right. Uh, this morning, um, if you would like to follow along, you can uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. We're going to read the first part of Revelation 21. We're going to be wrapping up this long sermon series uh, really kind of is this overview of, this, of the entire Bible. Um, far as the curse is found, and I meant to clear this with Eric, but I think we're doing it. We are going to end today with loudly and joyfully and maybe even raucously singing a Christmas carol uh, and um, with shouts of praise. Uh, so before we get started here, let me give you a brief picture of, of, uh, of what, what's to come. We've been in this sermon series, Far As the Curse is Found, for a long time. Uh, and here's what's to come. Next week, we're going to start uh, and go through the summer, and we're going to be in a sermon series uh, on one of my favorite books of Scripture, uh, the book of the letter to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians. Uh, and we'll actually continue on that um, uh, and throughout summer, we'll finish Eastertide in, in the book of Colossians and one of my favorite parts of the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And then, um, uh, and Eric mentioned this last week, uh, that uh, I'm going to help us, I'll be here for the first few weeks and help get started on that. And then I'm going to take just a bit of a mental uh, and emotional break over the summer uh, to be present in other areas of life. Uh, and so um, I'll be, Eric talked about this last week, and I'll be out um, uh, till the end of July and uh, uh, just trying to prepare for the joys and challenges that lie in life and ministry ahead. Uh, so with that, um, let's begin to look at the end. All right? So let me read for you Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through we said eight, right, David? Because it looks an awful lot like a nine when you can't see. All right. This is a letter that John writes, the Apostle John, and this is what he says in ver- at, uh, toward the end of the entirety of Scripture. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, understanding representation for the word sea, the sea was no more, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is where the temple of God was, the presence of God, the city of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will there be pain nor mourning nor crying anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Um, takes a sharp turn there at the end, but we'll cover that, okay? Um, there are two movies, uh, two types of movies in my life. I love slapstick comedies where you can tell kind of like three quarters of the way through they just ran out of material. And they're like, all right, we've got to figure out a way to get this done, right? Uh, like Lost, like the show Lost. They're like, all right, we just, we got, we, we're making too much money to not, un to undo what we started with, but we just got to figure out a way to make it done. So I never even watched it, so sorry if I offended some of the loyal followers. Um, but then there's other types of movies that uh, where they, you can tell that they started the movie with the end in mind, right? And the end like just explodes the meaning and it, and it changes everything and it leaves you like in awe and everything was geared toward, toward the end. Um, at times when you know the end of a movie or you know the end of a story or you know the end of a sporting event, it really kind of changes the way that you participate, right? If you just watch the end of a movie, then you're like, oh, I'm going to go back through and watch for, watch for the signs and clues that this, that, uh, you know, that this is coming, right? Um, uh, or for me, it's, it's sporting events. That's like... I can't tell you how many times I've watched Game 6 of the 2011 World Series, how many times I've watched Game 7 of uh, the Stanley Cup uh, finale, uh, and, and I live some of these great moments, and then sometimes, it, because, because if, I don't know, Enneagram people, I'm a four, and so I like tragedy, sometimes I will relive painful moments as well. Uh, one time um, in... in well, a very painful moment. I'm a Mizzou fan, so that also uh, brings up a whole lot of painful moments. Um, but uh, 1995, second round of the NCAA playoffs, Mizzou, the only close game that UCLA had in that entire tournament. They just dominated, and Mizzou had them. We had them right where we wanted them. We were up by one with how much time left on the clock? Come on. 4.8 seconds. All right, it's burned into my memory. 4.8 seconds. Uh, and they inbound the ball to Tyus Edney and play absolutely zero defense, and Tyus Edney sprints down the floor in 4.8 seconds, hits a five-foot jumper, and UCLA wins 75-74. It's heartbreaking. Well, several years later after that, it was probably about 10 years later, my wife and, my wife and I, my, my brother-in-law and I, uh, we were watching, there's this, there used to be this channel called ESPN Classic, which was basically YouTube before YouTube existed. 
Uh, and ESPN Classic would play old games like that. And so they just happened to have the Mizzou game on. And my brother-in-law and I were in uh, the living room. We were over at my parents' house, and we were in the living room watching the replay of this terribly tragic Mizzou game. And uh, Mizzou hits the shot to go up by one, and then they call timeout. At this point in time, my sister, who had been in the back of the house, comes into the kitchen, and she's grabbing a snack and fixing something, and you can see the TV from the kitchen, and, and we're in there watching, and they come out of the timeout, and they're very short shorts in the dated TV look. So I thought it was pretty obvious, but nevertheless, uh, sure enough, Tyus Edney gets the ball, runs down 4.8 seconds. You can remember or, not, or choose to block out that number if you, uh, whichever way you care. Uh, if you're a Kansas fan, that's probably like a, a revered number to you, um, but it's not to us. Uh, anyway, he runs down the floor. Sure enough, my brother-in-law are ready for it. We know what's coming. He hits the basket. When all of a sudden we hear from the kitchen, oh my gosh, not again. <laughs> my sister had failed to realize we were watching a replay. Knowing the end can impact the way that we see everything else. It, impact, it changes the way we experience and the, the way we do things. Uh, and so it is with the world around us. Um, the end of the world. Do, do you have a view of the end of the world? Have you done your research and classified your particular, this is how it's all going to go down? How do you think the world's going to end? And I will tell you, I don't have a view, but 2020 very nearly convinced me um, to, to change. I do, I do have a view, but it, it almost convinced me to change. Um, what do you think the Bible says about how the world's going to end? This, these, things, uh, these, these things weigh heavy on us. And, and I don't, sometimes I feel like we can be talking about being a follower of Jesus. We can be talking about being a Christian and being faithful and all this kind of stuff. And um, it's like we're talking about one thing. And then if we start talking about the end of time, it's like all of a sudden we're talking about a totally different subject. Same, some of the same words, we're still using Jesus and we're still talking about stuff, but now we've like left Bible and entered sci-fi. And, and it's almost like we're talking about an entirely different thing altogether. But it's definitely, especially now, it's definitely a topic of conversation, a very popular thing to talk about. So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to break it down into three parts. One will be obvious, and the last two will kind of blend together and it's fine. Um, but I want to address something important on how this comes together and I don't want to get too hung up on it because, we're, because it's, not, it's not necessarily what we're talking about. But I think it's important to hit so that we can talk about where we want to get to be. Still with me? Okay, good. So today we're going to look at how to read the Bible about the end times. Uh, and then the main thrust is going to be what does the Bible say about how it's going to end. And with that we'll look at heaven and hell as well. And then what does that mean for us today? How does that shape what we do right now? So first, how do we read the Bible about the end of time? Anybody else do this? Uh, growing up, I would read, I, I, I still get easily distracted when I'm reading. And I, and I can read a whole page and then go, what did I just read? Um, but every once in a while, like I would check out of a sermon uh, when I was sitting in church as a kid. I'd check out of a, out of a sermon and I'd read Revelation. Because, like, that's where the good stuff is, right? That's where the movie happens. Um, and, uh, and I remember just, just doing that and, and reading some, there's some very, 
I don't know of a better word. My wife said, can you think of a better word than funky? And I said, I can't. Um, there's some funky stuff in Revelation, uh, no doubt. And there's some things you read through and you're like, what? And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know necessarily, but I think we can get, uh, I think we, there's ways to, to follow up with that. Uh, there's a guy named Michael Gorman who's a scholar, and he wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And the most helpful thing he does is he gives five different ways that people read Revelation. I'm going to kind of gloss over four of them, and then I'm going to tell you my, my preference um, that I'm convinced is very good. Okay. Uh, there are two ways to read Revelation uh, that are where you kind of look at the text more like a code, that it's either predicting future events that are going to happen or it is explaining events from the past that have already, that have already happened. And the Bible is kind of this code that you have to unlock and discern uh, to kind of predict the end of the world. Uh, now, what you need to know, those, both of those views are historically r relatively very new. Last 100 years, 150 years. Um, and predominantly Western in their thought. And they focus on knowing what events are happening to lead to the end of the world, and then it's kind of this trying to figure them out. And did they already happen, or are we waiting for them to happen? Now, I used to read stuff like this all the time. I used to listen for political movements. I used to notice, like, evil world leaders or countries and nations and how many letters their last name had, and all, like, trying to piece things together because it's fascinating and it's it's like an escape the room right like you're figuring out how do we get out of here um and listen i believe that that makes for very interesting and good drama i do not believe that that makes for very good faithful reading of scripture but it is very popular there are two other views that tend not to focus necessarily on the end of the world. One focuses more on revelation as poetic language, uh, and it's just, it reveals characteristics of God. Another one focuses more on, um, uh, on like political movements, that the people of God are to constantly be in resistance to every uh, political movement. It is, it is always kingdom of God people versus people of this earth. Uh, and then the view that I think holds the most weight is called the pastoral prophetic view. And let me give you his description of this. This view sees the text as anchored in the past, but meant to speak to every generation of readers. The imagery is seen as a challenge and comfort by showing us a heavenly perspective on the events of our world throughout time. In other words, it's not given to us necessarily to look at historical events or even future events as code for how to unlock what the end of the world is going to be, but it is given to us to be able to see the world around us at all times through a heavenly lens. That revelation unlocks all of the ways that God has spoken to his people in the Hebrew scriptures and how they were told to live 
and what to be aware of and how to see and discern God's work in this world in, through, and despite other movements, other nations, other kings, other leaders. And it's not a code to try to discern the end of of time, but it is a lens through which we can see the world. Does that make sense? Um, In fact, when the Bible uses the word apocalypse, apocalypto, uh, that word, when you hear that word, most of us, what do we usually think of? End of the world. Greek, apocalypto, is actually the word for revelation. Not the book, but making known. A revelation. A disclosure. So, the Exodus, when God appears to Moses and gives the Ten Commandments, it is a great and grand apocalypse of God that he reveals himself. When Jesus comes and walks the earth, it is a great apocalypse of the revelation of God in human form. The Western definition of apocalypse is end of the world. The biblical definition of apocalypse is the revelation of God. So when we read Revelation, we don't necessarily have to read it like an escape the room type of code. Although we can see the symbolism uh, in the letter and it can actually unlock for us a lot of what God does in and through scripture. We can actually, like scripture comes to life and seeing the world uh, around us. Uh, you remember the Christmas story? Um, uh, if you, if the, the movie when, when Ralphie works really, really hard to get his decoder ring? Right, and then he can't wait to sit down and he listens to the radio show and then he, he decodes what's been saying all the time. You guys remember, remember what the line was? Drink more Ovaltine. Right? Um, revelation can kind of become a code to unlock all that scripture is saying of what takes place from generation to generation. We can see the symbolism in a right way and it can be decoded for us for how God reveals himself in truth in scripture. It can give us a lens to see the world and world events through that we're not necessarily unlocking a code of how things are going to end, but that we are given a view from heaven for how the world operates and has been operating from the beginning. There has always been a time of wickedness and hope. There are not just uh, we're not just looking for bad guys to defeat so that we can avo- avoid the end times. In fact, that's, that's not how that works. Um, there's always a movement of people and persons that are anti-Christ, uh, especially being aware of movements that this happens claiming the name of Christ. There are great nations and empires and, uh, that are more about the cities of man, the cities of Babel, than they are about the kingdom of God. We're not left with a secret puzzle to figure out, but a lens for discernment of how to operate in the world around us. So this is my conviction, uh, even though there are some really, 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 really weird things in the book of Revelation, I am convinced uh, that they fit much better in this view into the grand story of scripture and what that is all about, okay? Now, if you wanna debate and if you wanna send me a long email about how this other view is right, that's cool. I am pro end of the world, <laughs> uh, especially when we get to the, to the end um, uh, of the sermon. But um, we do see in Scripture that there will one day be a full culmination of all things, that there will be 
an end, uh, or, or perhaps a new beginning. Um, that there will be a final fulfillment of God's covenant, which will be the restoration of all things. And so there will be this, this grand culmination, but according to the Bible, it, it might not look like movies would, would have us to believe. At least I don't think it will. And the passage that we read here in Revelation, uh, I don't think calls for that either. Now, um, I will tell you, I don't know, with all that said, I don't know, I don't have any charts and graphs, I don't have any flannel graphs or anything like that uh, to, to, to spell out how it's all going to go down this morning. I don't know how it's going to end. I'm relieved that Jesus says it's a foolish generation that looks for a sign because I'm like, cool, because I'm not looking for a sign. So that's one check uh, in, in my box there. Um, but uh, I believe that we have been in the end of the age for a very long time. I believe that we've been in the escalations of wars for a very long time. Uh, and theories on the end of the world have been around since the beginning of the world. And so I'm convinced, based on the rest of the way that God reveals himself in Scripture, um, there will be a culmination of all things, and it probably won't be like we think. Uh, but we are told that there will be this, this final end, this final judgment, this final renewal. Now, we've taken several months to see how all of this has played out uh, and how the, and, and I, the ending can really bring it together in, I think, a beautiful and powerful way. Um, and so, to look at the culmination of all things, we're going to set it up, uh, well, from the beginning. In Genesis, God created the universe and he designed everything in the way that it should be and the way it should run and the way that we should operate. And Adam and Eve walked with God and labored to produce fruit uh, they had an opportunity to trust God in obedience and to love and delight in God's presence and in one another. And God says, behold, it was very good. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when Adam rebelled against God, it didn't just mess up one thing, it messed up everything. The curse, it's the theological term, uh, and it's what God uses himself, the curse seeps into everything. It seeps into our relationship with God. It seeps into our relationship with one another, our relationship with trust, our relationship with work, our relationship with obedience, our relationship with the earth around us, and our relationship even with ourselves. It affected everything. The first chapter after the rebellion of mankind, you have two brothers on the earth and one kills the other. And what we forfeited in the fall, in our rebellion, we forfeited the enjoyment and delight in the presence of God. And what we substituted in its place then is a fear and self-protection, an anger or bitterness in the presence of God. In our, in our rebellion. But also God's plan of redemption starts. God comes back to the garden. God invites a continued trust. He invites Adam. Did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat? The invitation there, Adam, say yes. But Adam doesn't trust anymore. And so Adam blame shifts. And then Eve blames. And so it's no longer a delight to be in the presence of God. Now it's a defensiveness. And everything that we've covered over the last several months, uh, the story that we tell every week, that God forms and fashions this people, and this people, he is both going to be with, and they are going to experience and delight in his presence, and then they, their missionary work, then, is to bear the image of the presence of God in the world around them. And that's what they're called to do. 
And then he hears their cries and he comes down uh, to be with them. And he is a fire by night and a cloud by day. And then they build a tabernacle where God dwells amongst his people, where all of the nation of Israel is set up to look into the tabernacle. And then he establishes a permanent residence and builds his temple. And the temple of any deity is where that deity dwells. And so God builds a temple in Israel in Jerusalem where he will dwell and be with his people. And not only that, but in the incarnation of Jesus, God becomes one of his creation. And so now, God is not just this holy of holy rooms that is dangerous and, and, and you have to go through a mediator of a priest, but we actually know what God is like in human form. He becomes one of us. And we can look and say, wow, I, I know what that's like. Do you know what it's like, God, to experience rejection and fear and betrayal from your friends? And God says, very much so. And not just on a spiritual level, I've actually done it in human form. And so God, God comes and dwells among us. And then when, when Christ leaves, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit actually dwells in us. God dwelling in us. And so the temple of God is no longer a building of brick and mortar, but a people with humble hearts and repentance. This, we are part of the temple of God which is what? The temple of God is where God dwells. And so you can see what happens is separation. We rebel and go our own way. And the entirety of scripture is God moving closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And the culmination of all things, the heavenly city will descend and God will be with us. He will be with us as our God and we will be his people. And he will be near. In fact, we have no need for the sun. Paul actually begins to see some aspects of still being in our present body that hinders us from being in the presence of God. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.8 to be among uh, and, and, and other places of scripture, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The perishable, putting on the imperishable. And this gets to our concept of heaven. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just take a minute to, to, to get here. When we die, those who are in Christ will be ushered into the presence of God. Now, all right, let me take just a minute here. Um, describe heaven however you want, right? Uh, no mosquitoes. Um, 70 degrees all the time. Every time I start describing heaven, I'm like, San Diego. Um, uh, 70 degrees, but we'll also have beautiful snow, and we'll be able to, right? Any, anything, like we'll, mountains and beaches all in the same vicinity, what else? Everybody will look good in a bathing suit. I'll be able to dunk a basketball. Like, it'll be glorious. Add, add that to the list. Anything that you want, you're not going to undo it, or you're not going to, you're not going to get there and be disappointed. I promise. So however you want to describe heaven, describe heaven. However, if you describe all of heaven and you leave out the presence of Jesus, then you have not described heaven. The presence of Jesus is what makes everything new. 
It is the presence of God that is the blessing. It is the presence of God that makes heaven heaven. Now, there is also here an eternal judgment. And let me tell you, for those who trust Jesus, the presence of God is a joy because we have been reconciled. For those who don't trust Jesus, the presence of God, Paul says one day every knee will bow. Some knees, that's, I believe that every knee means every knee. Some knees will bow in worship and awe and wonder and some knees will bow in arrogance and pride and bitterness and frustration. But I do think every knee will bow. And there will be an eternal judgment. Uh, this is the, you know, the burning sulfur, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and then we can say, well, what, if this is what heaven will be like, what will hell be like? And, and we're told hell is, is the separation from God. I'm going to give you the bare minimum on this, okay? Um, if you're not reconciled to God through the work of Jesus, uh, the presence of God will not be joyful for you. It will be hell. Does that make sense? Now, you can... Take that from wherever you are. And there's two ways to reject Jesus as Savior, right? There's the irreligious, prideful way, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then there's also the religious, prideful way that says, I've done this, this, and this, and this is what makes me better than those people. To delight in Jesus is a humble heart that says, I'm broken and I need a Savior. But it's also a, a filled heart that says, I delight to, and find joy to be in his presence. Um... I appreciate uh, John Paul Sartre gives a picture of hell in his play, No Exit. Um, and uh, man, it's painful because it's not necessarily hell in the way we think it is, but I actually think he nails it maybe, maybe more than, than, than we might think. Um, it's three people in a room and they realize over the course of the play they're going to be stuck in this room forever and each one desires approval from, from the person on their right uh, and then each one despises uh, the person on their left. And so the person you want approval from despises you and you're never going to get it. And then they want approval from this person and they despise them. Does that make sense? And it just goes in a circle and they realize this is hell, which leads uh, Sartre to give his famous ending line of that play. Anybody remember what it is? It flows well in our just radically individualistic culture. Hell is other people. Anyone ever walk out of a, of a conversation or spending time with people or being around other people with confessor's remorse? You know what that is? Like you walk out of a conversation, you're like, oh my gosh, what did I say? I can't believe I said that. Is that, does everybody deal with that? Or please don't tell me it's just me. Okay. Why did I type that? Why did I say that? I can't believe I did that. I can't. Okay. So um, imagine that feeling never being addressed never being forgiven, never getting satisfied, and only magnified over and over throughout eternity because you have to be the one to justify your actions. 
And just imagine that going on and just getting worse and worse and worse and never being able to go to the person and clarify things or set it straight or make sure that they were cool with it and all they do is just drop certain hints about how offended they were but they don't ever say it directly and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Everybody there? All right. Add fire and sulfur to that and then like, fine. It's almost a relief. Okay. Now imagine this. Imagine sitting in a room with someone who knows everything about you. Every motive, every thought, every embarrassing thing, every regret, every hidden sin and flaw. And they, and they bring it up to you, not like on a movie screen so that everybody can watch, all right? So undoing some youth group trauma there. Um, but like they bring it up to you and they say, listen, I know all of this and I'm not holding it against you. I'm telling you, you are forgiven and I love you. Even here, I am glad that you are with me. And it wars against having to keep more of that hidden and you don't have to keep piling on top and compensating for this mistake and then this mistake and then this mistake because you don't have to justify. You've been justified by the work of Jesus. This is what Christ has done. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. And that is what we will experience fully in eternity. Heaven is being fully present with God. It's being reconciled and being known and being loved. It's the itch that's like halfway up your back that you can't quite reach from any angle. And then you ask the person that you love or trust to scratch and they get like around it but never quite get that right spot and then the God the creator of the universe who knows exactly how every nerve ending in your body is firing right at that moment knows exactly where to touch and how much to scratch and doesn't even leave an extra itch that needs to be rubbed out really well and he perfectly satisfies that longing because he knows every part of your body it is, it is the wholeness completely satisfying to be in the presence of Jesus, the God who knows and loves his people. That is, that's heaven. But as N.T. Wright would say, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. The resurrection shows us that there's actually more than just this disembodied future in the clouds in a galaxy far, far away. There is, this is important, there is a renewal. Um, We're going to go long today, I'm sorry. Um, But I'm going to get excited from here on out. There's a renewal of our bodies that has been, our bodies that have been corrupted by sin and a fallen world, a renewal of our knowledge, of our relationship with God, with each other, a renewal of all things that the curse has affected. That when Christ fully returns, he will make his blessings known far as the curse is found. And what is important about this, the many ways we've been told to think about the afterlife or the end of the world in Western context, at least in my context, was the idea of one glad morning, I'll fly away and I'm getting out of here and this world can burn and one day I'm out. And I want to tell you, Bible does not present it as Christians getting out of here while the old Death Star explodes. That is not the way scripture designs, uh, tells us that's going to happen. 
Uh, Bible t- the Bible tells us not of the destruction of the earth and all of the things in it, but the renewal of the earth. And that changes everything. Revelation tells us that the heavenly city, the dwelling place of God, you remember the temple, that's where God dwells, the new Jerusalem, the hope of the city of God will actually descend, will come down, and that God's presence will be with his people, and that will make all things new. And it changes everything. We're not getting out of here. Our king is returning. And we'll make all things new. This is the way that I like to, this is a helpful vision for me and hopefully it is for you. Think about your house and how much you care about your house when you're getting ready to go on vacation. Okay? When you're getting ready to go on, now there are weird people that like to clean up and make sure everything's in order so that when you come back, you don't have to come back to a messy house, right? That's my wife. For me, I don't care because I am ready to leave. We're going to the whatever, the beach, the whatever, and I'm flinging clothes everywhere because I've got to find a swimsuit that I haven't worn in forever. And I'm just like, we'll get that later. We're getting out of here. This is not how God has called people to treat his kingdom and his home. Okay? We're not rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, what if you're about, what if you're about to have important guests? How do you treat your home when you're getting ready to welcome important guests? Kids, what if you're getting ready to have sleepovers? I don't know if sleepovers are back yet or if you if, but sleepovers are a thing. They were a thing and they were a great thing. And so how do you treat your house or the basement or your room when you're getting ready for a sleepover, right? You're putting stuff away. You're making sure that it looks over. You're getting everything that you need to build the tent in whatever room of the building of the house you're going to build the tent in and you're making sure the snacks are supplied and like you're taking care of things well. Uh, When we moved into our house 14 years ago, uh, the first Christmas we were there, um, my wife's family was coming. uh, And she's got four siblings, and then they all have lots of kids, and then her parents were coming, which that's another funny story I'll have to tell another time. Um, And they were all going to stay at our house. And this was huge, and we were excited uh, to, to host everybody. And so we cleaned in areas that probably we haven't cleaned since. We scrubbed with toothbrushes behind the toilet, uh, behind the toilets, and we cleaned the handles, every possible handle. And uh, the vacuum cleaner went a little bit further under the fridge and the, the stove just to make sure that everything possible was out of sight, and we cleaned as much as possible. And we took care of our home because we were anticipating. It was a joyful burden because we were anticipating the coming of uh, of, of these guests. Friends, we are operating in this world not with the thought of, of God coming to get us the heck out of here, but with the anticipation of the returning of the king. Martin Luther was asked one time what he would do if he knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow. Supposedly he was asked this. It could be old internet lore, but I like his answer anyway. He said, uh, again, supposedly, he said, I would plant a tree. And there are two reasons that he said that. First, if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would continue to do faithfully the things that I am doing today. The end of the world nonsense can really get us turned off on the mission of God's people. It can actually cause us to start hating people or hating things that we're not called to hate out of the fear of the end of the world. 
and it can get distracting. And so Luther basically said, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But the second reason is because imagine what that tree will look like when the creator of all things returns. If we're all getting out of here, if this world is just going to burn in a fire and one glad morning we'll fly away, then seriously, go do little devotionals, wear Christian t-shirts, fight our battles, drive our nice cars, live for retirement because we're waiting for vacation and who cares how we treat this world. But if our king is returning and if the resurrection gives us a picture of what this new creation looks like, then our labor and our work here and now matters. Every cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus will one day be a glorious fountain to the glory of our Lord when he returns. N.T. Wright in his book Surprised by Hope gives this beautiful picture of the implications here. I think we've got the quote. Do we got it? All right. He says this, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love and gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a handicapped child how to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of, the G- of Jesus honored in the world. All of this somehow will find its way through the resurrection, the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. And then he follows that up with this. I don't know how our work will reappear in the new world, but I know that God's new world of justice and joy, of hope, for the, uh, for the whole earth was launched when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. And I know that he calls his followers to live in him and by the power of his spirit and so to be new creation people here and now bringing signs and symbols of the kingdom to birth on earth as it is in heaven. Several years ago, I had to sit down with a friend. His adoption was falling apart. They were getting ready to adopt, and at the last minute, everything fell apart. And he was angry, and he was frustrated, and he was spiraling in despair, and so he wanted to meet. So I called my friend Travis Gable to go with me because Travis has experienced similar things. And we went, and we sat down, and we cried, and we got angry, and all of that. And Travis was a bit choked up, if you can, actually, if you can imagine that. And Travis just sat there and said, he said this, I'm just here to tell you there's hope. I can't think of a better mission statement for followers of Jesus in our day. Paul starts nearly every one of his encouragements to God's people with the hope of the resurrection and that's ultimately this one day. So here's your assignment for this week. Compassion 
kindness, justice, beauty, mercy, encouragement to each other and to the cashier and to the guy who just cut you off in traffic and to the coworker that's always messing around on Zoom. And if that's you, then to the other coworker that's always getting frustrated at you messing around on Zoom, to the kid in class who's acting out because her world has just been rocked over the past year, to the customer care rep who doesn't necessarily like their job, to the person on Facebook who always has to leave a comment, to the kid bringing your takeout order to the car. Look people in the eye. Show them compassion and love. Listen not for how they're making your life inconvenient, but listen for what's going on in their lives. And be the presence of God. Be the hope of the resurrection. Tip better. Be better customers and workers. Do simple acts of love and encouragement. Advocate for those who are often left out. Listen with empathy and not judgment. We desperately need this. In the name of Jesus, bring hope. Bring the presence of God. What they do in return is not important. This week, let the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection and renewal of all things be our encouragement to labor with hope and anticipation on this coming kingdom. It doesn't need to be a movement. It doesn't need to be a hashtag. If nobody sees it, all the better. This week, let's be the people of the resurrection, the people of a new creation, laboring to prepare this home because one day our king will return and he will make all things new. He will come to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our hope and it's not us against them we are not a people that has to labor against, uh, we, we, we labor against an enemy that is defeated. And so may we be faithful. May we experience the joy and the hope of the resurrection. May that recalibrate us. May the thought of the end of the world not drive fear or despair or suspicion, but may it cause us to labor with the hope of anticipation that one day, one day, not given to us, but one day our king will return and that all that is bad will be undone. And one day we will dance and sing and rejoice and be made whole and full and anxiety will be no more and insecurity will be no more and all of those things will be taken away in the presence of our king. May that lead us in confession. May that lead us to fight even harder against sin that so easily entangles us. May it lead us to show compassion where we would otherwise show judgment. Thank you that you, your promise is that you will keep remaking us. You will continue to pour over and wash us and one day present us new and beautiful without spot or wrinkle. God, let that day and that hope spur us on to, to bring, to bear that image uh, on earth as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world.
That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.